0: Welcome to Sound and Vision
1: Conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process Here's the host of Sound and Vision Brian Alfred
0: Welcome to Sound and Vision Matthew Rone is an artist who makes truly original work He's had a long history of making amazing art playing music, and he's even been known to inhabit his sculptures to bring them to life. We sat down in this Long Island City studio to chat about spirituality, skateboarding, and next-level Instagram. Here's our conversation. All right, so I think it's been probably 15 or 16 years since I've been in your studio. Yeah, definitely. Which was... (laughs) Across town in Connecticut, right yes and um, and that was ninety would that be ninety
1: nine uh yeah, I graduated from Yale in two thousand in two thousand yeah
0: so but you grew up in
1: louisville I did, which is a music town definitely
0: well, and I mean, yes, there was a scene there, definitely uh, when you were making music at that time, there was probably
1: yeah, definitely. I was playing music there probably. Uh, nineteen ninety through ninety four. And what kind of
0: music were you were you playing back then?
1: Um, you know, like slant ripoff kind yeah. of stuff. Maybe like uh and in, maybe influenced by like Bitch Magnet and I don't know, all that. Let's see, what else was were we really listening to a lot? Like Bastro, mm-hmm. Crane. Um, but like, yeah, like what, I don't know what you call that. Like, um, Um, I mean, I guess it's indie music, but it's like, kind of like, um, not really focused on singing, like more like guitar riffs and like tonal shifts,
0: like, you know, quiet, loud.
1: Yeah, definitely. Indie rock. I think at that
0: point it was just called indie rock. Yeah. And then it became post rock.
1: Or yeah, whatever it was. I think, I think. Like once I went to Baltimore, I started listening to like a lot more electronic music and like yeah. other stuff. So. Were you,
0: but when you went to you went to Micah, right? I right. did. Right. Yeah. Did you were you going to the Black Hat and places like that and still seeing?
1: I did go. Stuff? Yeah. Like it's funny when I went to orientation. I remember like orientation was really terrible, and we just like went to DC and went to some clubs and saw some shows. Like immediately, I mean, I saw a little bit of music. And, and there were always parties and bands, and then there was, like, I think, I can't remember the name of the place, but, like, wherever, Circus Lupus. I think there was, like, a factory downtown in Baltimore. Went down there and played music sometimes, too. Yeah. Well, the
0: the electronic stuff that was going on at that time, I'm trying to think of what...
1: Well, like, for me, it was all, like, um, it was all, like, trip-hop, like, Apex, uh, like, yeah, Moax, yeah. like, right. all that, like, kind of, like, jazzy, jungly, yeah. like... Um, stuff. Yeah, that was big. And that fused
0: with a lot of the Chicago, because a lot of the guys from Louisville ended up going up to Chicago or collaborating with those guys, and that music kind of fused in with them.
1: Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, for me, from from there, like, I really was always, like, really into Miles Davis, and actually, went, when I was at Yale, I, I was able to take this course with this guy, John Zwed. Yep. So he, he
0: wrote the book on Sun Ra. Yeah,
1: and at the time, he was working on a book. Um, about Miles Davis and Mm -hmm. so he had like a bunch of grad students like meet and somehow I was just lucky to get into the course I saw like he they kind of like auditioned people for the course how (laughs) many people were in it uh 20 maybe like 15 I don't know we just sat in a little room and John would just like tell stories about like old jazz day shit. And like, and, um, but I was really, uh, the reason I really wanted, I mean, I was already like a huge Miles fan and, um, but I was really like super into jazz fusion. And like, like while I was, while I was in grad school, like listening a lot to like Mahavishnu Orchestra and Weather Report and um, like all the Billy Cobham stuff. And I don't know. It's
0: funny, I sometimes I play that stuff when I'm to my, when I'm teaching. And the students think it's smooth jazz. Like, they have no...
1: Yeah, concept of the history of jazz. Yeah.
0: relevance to that. I mean, my, for me, it was Thrust. Thrust and sextant. I think, were the two albums that just blew my mind. That's, I don't, that's Herbie oh, it, before
1: yeah, um, yeah. Headhunters. Right yeah. before,
0: when it turned from... I know, like,
1: Secrets, that one. It was before I, that, yeah. yeah.
0: It was just when he went from kind of, you know, the hard bop into starting to play with, like... Um, with electronics and keyboards and synths and stuff, but Sextant was pretty amazing, and yeah, it got definitely. really good. Like the the Mahavis, like it, it. I
1: mean, progressed. it's cheesy, I think, but it's like it's very noddy, but I I still like it. Yeah, I still I think it's amazing.
0: I've been listening to a lot of that actually lately, along with a massive drum and bass kick, which I can't seem to shake. Yeah, because now Spotify, you know, you have these playlists, you could just listen to anything at any time. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. You can get into these old, you know, going back and digging through and listening to old stuff you haven't, like Square Pusher. I haven't listened to him in a long time.
1: Yeah, I still listen to that yeah, stuff. But,
0: but getting back into it, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I, often, I think when I feel a little stagnant in my like creative process, I look back, I was, whether it's an artist or a musician, kind of look back at someone who opened doors, like Miles Davis. All he did was open doors. Yeah. Or Picasso was just like, completely changing over and over again. And, yeah. you know, I feel like he reinvented his, you know, not only the way he was working, but also tried to like push the envelope of, of the medium and like the way his work was getting out there.
1: Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah,
0: so that kind of, so when you were in, in Maryland and listening to music, what kind of work were you making at that time?
1: Um, when I first got to undergrad, I was making, let's see, I'm trying to remember. Well, when I was in Louisville, I went to an art high school as well. And like the, like some of the earliest artists I met were like Jason Noble and, um, um, Jeff Mueller. They Mm -hmm. were both in Rodin and, and, um, and there was like a place and Louisville where music people hung out, like, um, you know, who they, those guys were obviously like in college and, or yeah. dropped dropped out of college or whatever they, whatever. But, um, but they were the first artists that I, that I really met and, um, like working kind of artists. And we were all like really into like, um, Anselm Kiefer and like, um, like Joseph Cornell and, Jim Dine Mm -hmm. like like this kind of like weird I don't really know exactly how to say it but it's like expressive kind of like material material laden kind of and those guys were like making a lot of stuff like and then covering it with toilet paper and then putting shellac over the toilet paper so that it would like create this like weird aged looking like stuff and we went to like a lot of junkyards and like we made art out of trash and stuff like that and it was like very like orange and amber colored and i kind of imitated that style i was also i was much more of a like a cornell fan um and so i made lots of like assemblage kind of stuff and so i did that a little bit right when i got to micah but then um i met brock enright who's an artist Mm -hmm. and sorry and um and he was a lot more uh, worked a lot more with language and concept and stuff and we hung out like 24 hours a day and that kind of sensibility started to creep into my work so I did like lots of like conceptually constructed things and books and then um like in like probably my third year of undergrad I went to Italy and when I came back from Italy it kind of just exploded my process and started to make work more maybe Closer to what I'm doing now than closer to anything else. So it was like, um, kind of narrative, um, colorful. I don't know, much more representational back then. But yeah, travel has an. I mean, it's something
0: I've talked to with a lot of people about how travel really has an impact on your work, whether just the physical act of traveling or the what you're seeing or the the culture
1: shifts in culture and I think for me it was just that I couldn't make sculpture because of the program that I went to in Italy it was like in a uh, year uh, term abroad or whatever didn't have great sculptural facilities yeah. and so I, I kind of knew that going in and in fact for me the first things that I the first artworks that I made were photographic and that was like really what I wanted to do was be a photographer. And so I, when I went to Italy, I, I decided that I would do I would make photographs. And I made photographs of still lives. And it was kind of the um, process of taking ready-made things and putting them all together that kind of opened my mind up to maybe more narrative-based aesthetic stuff yeah. than concept-based works and stuff like that, so.
0: But did you always draw? Because isn't drawing a big part of your
1: process? I did, I did, I wasn't. So I, I I did draw a lot but I but in a totally different way it was more I kind of I still am really inspired by reading and back then even more I think like I would just be reading things and the words I would be reading like for the narrative of the whatever I was reading but also just sometimes certain words would trigger like imagery or ideas and I think I wasn't drawing, not in the same way that I am now. I always kept sketchbooks and stuff, but it was more like writing and poetry.
0: And reading and that kind of stuff was a real um, kind of driving force for the work, right? Yeah, I mean... This is pre-internet, not the data, but this is pre-internet, which is... Yeah, totally. You know, I often think back now about my pre-internet, um, kind of influence, you know, yeah. like where I was going, because we all kind of go somewhere for yeah. inspiration, whether it's music. or I used to go to the the New York Public Library, the Image Library, yeah, and check cool. out and make copies of images.
1: I've always been a big book guy, even art yeah. book guys, like I uh, art books and stuff. And I think when I was at when I was at Micah, I definitely went to the library a lot. But um, I also had a friend who, who I won't mention because. Mm-hmm. He was a partner in crime, I guess. But I would when when the bookstore at Micah had actually a pretty good art book section, yeah. and uh, I would go and get like a couple of sketch pads and stuff, and then I would like put a book in between those, and then he was the checkout guy, <laughs> and so I would just like buy some sketch pads, but like walk away with like a great like Joseph Boy's catalog or like yeah. some sort of something. They, I mean, they had great group show catalogues from museums in Europe, and they just had a really good selection and it was constantly like being refilled with like new exhibition catalogs and um, I think even though like I don't really use the internet so much to I mean I look at contemporary shows but I still like do a lot of like book buying on I mean I use the internet to buy my books but I still like get most of my um, visual inspiration through books but yeah. then, what I was thinking more was like more novels and philosophy and stuff. When I was at undergrad, I I majored in my major was painting, but I can I, the reason I did that I didn't really make paintings that much mm-hmm. at all. But um, I did that because I wanted to. They allowed me to study with uh, academic professors for studio credit. Right. So, I we had a philosopher in residence and so like we read like crazy Umberto Eco and Barthes and Aristotle and stuff like that and then I had another guy um that we structured all sorts of crazy science reading and other stuff and and then they would come and look at my work and it was just a better conversation than the yeah. studio people.
0: Well, what made you Decide to apply for sculpture when you move to the next level. I mean, I was
1: yeah. making sculpture. I didn't. Oh, you were just. I the went. Painting yeah, because yeah. they had. It was the director was a lot more lenient to my, to the way I wanted to try to educate myself. That's I did right. a lot of independent study, like even in high school. Yeah.
0: Well, that's nice. Yeah. I didn't go, I didn't go to that <laughs> high school. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have independent.
1: Uh, it's interesting how that boundary,
0: how boundaries change, you know, as far as like institutionally with education. Mm-hmm. And, and thinking about, I often go back and forth between: Is it a good thing because then you can actually cross those boundaries and actively pursue other people in other areas, or, you know, or if it all just becomes like art school and there's no yeah, there's no sort of disciplines, is that progressive and an advantage, or is that something that kind of dilutes the your ability to navigate through different.
1: I think like for me, I was listening to um, I was just in Miami and I was listening to I gave a lecture to these I can't remember the name of the foundation, but it was like gifted for gifted high school uh-huh. artists and and they were talking a lot about how they wanted to like because it's all kinds of artists from dancers to painters to whatever writers yeah. or actors and and they were talking about how they really valued like and wish that there was more cross pollination. And what the people that were in charge said that I thought was interesting was that it's like it's up to you to to make those connections. Like, I mean, we can schedule time for dancers and artists, you know, like painters to be together, but like, and I kind of agree with that. I think like if you're searching it out, you find the way to cross pollinate. And and I kind of feel like um, not that I like the the boundaries of the different disciplines, but I like I like that some people are dedicated to their discipline and they they really like get in there and shine a light on it and like get to the bottom of like, or not the bottom, but they like really dig in and find out what it is. And I think that of course it's great if you have tons of disciplines, but I, for some reason I, I gravitate more towards like the full exploration of, right. of stuff. Yeah, I think
0: those people too who seek it out, who are naturally going to find the professor in graphic design or, you know, go to the lecture in physics across the campus or something. Those are the kind of people who are going to be driven to really want to broaden their work and make it better either way. But I fear because nowadays, I think younger people, it's everything just happens to you. Like it's on your phone. Everything is instantaneous. Yeah. And there's less of this digging. Like I used to go to the library and dig through art forms and like old ones and just try to figure out okay, who's this Bruce Nauman guy? Why are these two heads floating around on yeah. a stick? It was really, yeah, yeah. you know, like a detective search. And now it's just like, oh, just Google it.
1: For me, my my relationship to that is, um, I always think like when I was growing up skateboarding in Louisville, like one of the things that people did was like have flyers like up on their walls, yeah. you know, like shows that they had been to. Or in and, and our case, like there were like some older guys in the scene that like had been to shows like in New York or like you know L.A. or whatever, and they had they had like the master mm-hmm. set of like great flyers, like the old yeah. black flag ones and like yeah. W- uh, like, C- yeah, ones. like yeah, like those and like um, some really good like Misfits ones and and um, I was like a really crazy Misfits like fan, and but it was really hard to get the material, like it wasn't all out there, right, and you had to work so hard to like, like I had a friend who had the flyers, but he wouldn't just like Xerox them for me. You know, it was like- They were his. Kind of, and it wasn't that he was a dick. It was just that like, it's, I'm sure that he had to like somehow prostrate himself to like get them as well. And so like I had to wait. And I just remember like how much I valued them like when I finally did get to Xerox those flyers like how amazing I felt about having like some crazy like Sam Hain flyer from the jockey club like or something you know and it just felt like I mean definitely art's the same way like I know for me like like you were saying you went to the image lab or whatever I just remember going to like our bookstore in my town and like just like sitting in the art section and going through all the books and stuff and I'm sure students still do that and And, I mean, I'm sure, like, every generation has, like, their... It changes. Like, yeah, like, it gets, like, refined in a way. And so that it's, like, before, you know, book, like, that uh, there were so many great art books, it was, like, you had to know someone rich who had a great collection or, like, you know what I mean? I'm sure it's, like, always kind of changed. And I think that, like, but I do think you're right that there's something about having to work, to find what you are into that marries you to it in a different way than just like being able to go on the internet and like be obsessed with like whatever for like a week, you know?
0: Yeah, I think it's it's probably the same kind of experience. It's just navigated in a totally different way now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like that way is better, like digging through the magazine. It's just different. And you have a different kind of physical relationship with seeking things out, Mm -hmm. you know? And now I think it's video probably has a profound effect on the way people experience things, because it's so prevalent now. Mm-hmm. You know, everything you could just see the video yeah, yeah, and that's just true. experience it that way. Not that it's necessarily bad or n- not as good of a way to see something, but I think it's just—I don't know—it must be changing the pace and the way that we comprehend things. And
1: Definitely. The,
0: you know, I, I think the amazing artists will navigate those that way of experiencing things in a really interesting way. Totally. But it's just, for me, it's it's going back to the whole music thing, you know, and thinking about, you know, like I grew up skateboarding, I grew up like fetishizing those those posters from mm-hmm. like shows that I would go to. I think it, it really, it's funny how many people I meet uh, who grew up skateboarding or grow up in that culture and end up becoming artists. Mm-hmm. And there's just something about going to see a show live in person. That gives you this feel. There's a feeling about that, that mm-hmm. experience that I think is probably one of those magical things about work, uh, artwork that nothing else really gets to.
1: Yeah, uh, for me, I saw um, when I was like r- probably like in the eighth grade. I saw um, at the Speed Museum in Louisville. I saw a David Hockney show, mm-hmm. and th- that was also one of my most like formative experiences because I was really into photography, but I'd I'd never seen photography used. It was a it was a, actually a show of his the you know the photography like yeah, crazy, the, collage, the, the modular collage. Yeah. yeah. I had never seen anything like that and it totally blew me away. And I think it really it really inspired me to, to become a maker. I mean, yeah. I was doing all sorts of other things, like originally got into photography through a zine that I had with my friend Josh. Um We needed photographs, so I started like experimenting with my dad's camera and stuff. But then I saw that Hockney show, and I was just blown away. I made my own little like modular collage things, and like
0: those are the moments, right? I feel like everyone has those moments. It's like you don't even realize it at the time, but it goes on to like I saw at the Carnegie Museum. I grew up in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. I saw at the Carnegie. A show of Van Gogh and then Ukiyo-e mm-hmm. and the, the relationship, the influence that it had on him. Mm-hmm. And I remember loving the show because I think it, for me it was like the color was crazy. Yeah. And it's just unfamiliar to me and I was kind of blown away by it. Mm-hmm. And then it must have just sat in the back of my mind for years and years but it had, you know, I always think back to that show. Yeah. And with music I had a similar experience when our band was on tour. We played in Louisville mm-hmm. and we were getting food next door to the, I forget the name of the club. Mm-hmm. We were getting food next door at this like, dingy restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, um, we ended up getting, long story, we, there was some weirdness between us and the staff there. And we ended up getting food poisoning, oh, sure. which hit right before we went <laughs> on stage. <laughs> so we managed to play our set in between getting sick before and after the set. And I remember going backstage after our set, and we had to wait for another band to get our gear. Mm-hmm. And I laid on the floor, and the, the room was spinning. And then Rocket Number 9 from Sun Ra came on.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Which was, it was just such a crazy song and a crazy feeling that I was feeling at that time. And for me, Sun Ra, ever since then, has been like transformative. Like, yeah. I've been totally, Not that I wouldn't have been interested in his music anyway, but there's like these moments that burn in your mind something that, that I think you keep responding to later in life.
1: Yeah, definitely. Especially if you get sick or I think a lot of people have like crazy epiphanies when they get sick or they have trauma. Is that, it's not just me? No. I mean, I think it's (laughs) like, I mean, I think like a lot of coming of age, like, is like a lot of like um, rituals, like when you're vomiting or you're like dehydrated. Yeah. or whatever, you know, like, you push your body. Whenever you can push your body to the limit, I think a lot of times you, like, push through to some other level. You feel more alive or something. But that's I always why people like take that. drugs, like, crazy drugs, yeah. you know? Like, you're pushing your chemistry to the limit. Or, like, um, even, like, I think, like, in the Bible, like, Paul, like, falls off a horse.
0: You Just know, there's, to... like,
1: that Caravaggio painting of, like, yeah, the yeah. bigger horse's ass, like, and he's down at the bottom. It's, like, he falls off the horse, and that's when he sees, like... I don't know, like, he starts to follow the path, because he, like, hits his head,
0: you know, like, the light bulb, the proverbial light bulb. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that, I feel like every time I get really sick, especially, like, with a stomach bug, I just keep thinking, like, I'm really alive, yeah, and then afterwards, I really appreciate things for, like, 24 hours. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) like, I'm like, this is so amazing, I'm not throwing up, you know, yeah, then then you kind of fall back into your Yeah. The status quo of things, unfortunately. Totally. But yeah, I don't know if it would be intense if it was always like that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Some and you know, a lot of the musicians that I'm interested in now, like people like Flying Lotus, and they talk about Mm -hmm. doing these I don't even know, I'm not up to snuff on like the latest stuff, but you know, these mind expansive drugs that are supposedly so crazy that you're just completely outside of yourself, but you're it feels more real than anything. I can't even imagine like, going down that path.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it's intense.
0: Yeah. So, speaking of intense, when you um, got out of school and moved to New York, how did you get... Because you've been in this studio that we're at now for a long time. How did you get set up and kind of... How did you sort of make it happen?
1: Um. Actually, before I left Yale, Nathan Carter mm-hmm. had already been here for a year, and he had, like... Um, a pretty nice sized studio and there was like a small room that was empty. Was that in st- Dum- his space in Dumbo? No, it was like in Bushwick, like oh, on, okay. on Bogart Street. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's now that building. Well, anyway, so so he, he uh, when we came, to, when we were down here, he was like, I want to show you something. And so he like shows me the room and he's like, do you want to like use the room? Like, you know, and so like I like signed a lease with this woman <laughs> that was, um that had the main lease on that space. And I just went straight there, and then I think like I I did like lots of fabrication for other artists like right when I got to New York like, to John, get by. like John Miller and Jason Dodge and um, and uh, but through that I was able to just be in the studio as as well like while I was waiting for things to dry I could work on my work or like whatever I was doing for them I could take a little time for myself like yeah. at the same time or at least just be around my work and stuff. But it was a pretty, I feel pretty lucky because I, because I just like moved my stuff out of my Yale studio into the, my studio here and yeah. then just like started working and it was nice to have Nathan, you know, cause he was like doing his thing. He already had a gallery and like he was doing his thing. So that was nice to be able to come. And then we moved upstairs to like a better, a bigger space. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, now it's a grocery store. It's like it was a first floor space. Now there's like a grocery store there, but um, and yeah. Then,
0: I'm not too. My studio's not too far from there now. Yeah. yeah,
1: and so then they wanted to expand the grocery store, so we left, and then I came here. And so, yeah, it's been this. It's been nice here, just because the price is okay, and you know we like have a lot of space and stuff like that. And facilities to do what you do. I
0: always wonder about that because, you know, friends of mine who are sculptors, it's like you need, it's a different kind of space.
1: Yeah, I think that's sometimes why, I mean, I think obviously it's a concept, but I think like part of the reason why a lot of sculpture looks like shit lately is because it's like you need too much space or time or money to do it. And so it's like, I'm sure a lot of it's just like in response to like contemporary spirit of the age but i think that like part of the casual look of sculpture is just because you need space and time and
0: money and there's less space time yeah
1: yeah exactly so you can get away with showing like a crumpled up venetian blind or something like that
0: right well there's always you know the romantic critics or people the responders to the artwork Artwork, who will say that in times of peril and struggle, that's when the real artwork comes out. Yeah, probably true. I mean, is that do you feel like that kind of might be the um, case?
1: I, I hadn't thought of what's happening in those terms, yeah. but um, I mean, I can see I can see what you're saying. Possibly. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm not a fan of what's happening right at this moment, but but I will say that. I'm looking backwards a lot more than I'm looking like right in the present. Yeah.
0: Well, I wonder, Just I just thought of it now as you were saying it, I wonder if a lot of the current work that you see that has a look of speed to it, mm-hmm. like that it's maybe yeah. not labor intensive, yeah. it took a long time, mm-hmm. if part of that might be... A reaction to, to,
1: hey, you know, I'm working 12 hours a day. Or what you were saying earlier about the internet, maybe, like, it's, like, everything's, like, so quick and, like, you know, you're, like, into this for five seconds and then you're, like, onto this other thing from 1920 and then you're, like, looking at, like, 2000 and then you're, like, you can get any record you want or whatever. So, like, maybe, maybe, maybe.
0: Yeah, the non-linearity of, like, a historical narrative or, like, you know, a narrative in someone's work. It's just now it's, like, that's the person who does that, that's, you know. And, yeah. and and it seems like people like to digest people's work very quickly now too, instead of looking at that long-term, Yeah, you know. I always love going to a museum and seeing a show of an artist, and it's like a long period, if not a retrospective, a long period of the work, because I feel like you really see them thinking through images over time.
1: Of course, I, I also think it's interesting just in terms of the technicality of, of how works are sold, like, and as recent as 2000, like, people use transparencies to share artworks. Yeah. So it's like you want to curate a show with certain works of this artist, like you call the gallery, you wait like a week for the transparencies to arrive and then you have to take them out of the envelope and put them on like a light table and like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or for collectors too, like it's like, you know you the work it takes like it takes a couple of days to get the transparency and then you have to take the time to look at it and then and then you can keep it and think about it for a couple of days and then and then make your choice and then send the transparency back it's a lot of extra work
0: yeah
1: like if you decide to walk away from it then it didn't really hit you but if you if you can make it over all those hurdles like all the waiting and stuff and commit to buying a piece or showing a piece or thinking about a piece then maybe it has a better chance to like stick. Yeah. Whereas like and I don't know and also like just that everything the way that most things are done now is through imagery like through a jpeg yep. that it's like I don't I don't I'm not prepared to also to say that that's bad but I think it's definitely different than than um than seeing it in person or even in a book or like, I don't know. I just think it's there's something different about it. Yeah. And I think, it, like, holding a transparency, I don't know if that makes such a big deal, but um, it's... It's different. It, yeah, it's totally a different process. And I, I mean, just feel like it's, like... Um, I don't know. It's interesting. I, I think it's interesting. Like, there are some artists that... Uh, like, Dirk Bell, who, like, was telling me that he is trying to make works that can't be photographed mm-hmm. just because he doesn't want his work to be like emailed and decided on like based on a jpeg so it's like he's trying to make drawings and things that like that you have to actually see in person yeah and i I think i like that and i think that it's like it's i think in the same breath though like i'm totally guilty of not going to see enough things in person and i think that's just a function of my like hermitness and just like i come to the studio and go home and every now and then I go out and look at things but I think I don't know I think it's a
0: it, there's a room for that and there's room for the other You know? yeah like totally the photographer still uses the giant Polaroid is kind of keeping that yeah, legacy yeah. alive but then there's also people who need to navigate you know what's going on with technology yeah. and talk about that in that medium yeah.
1: so it's kind of yeah, I'm not anti. Yeah. I mean, I I I mean, I'm really into digital photography yeah. and like I'm into imagery and like all that. I'm aware of how it works. I just think it's I think maybe more for me it's like the speed. I think the speed of decision making is interesting. Yeah. Like the quicker it's like you make a work, it gets photographed, it goes, it's emailed or whatever and then you can like pass a judgment on it whereas like I think I like the idea that it's like m- Like maybe it was when it's harder to make a photograph of a work, when it's harder to decide that it's like finished or whatever. Then it then there's something like there's so much more time to change your mind, or everyone has time to change their mind, or get more information, or like, whatever. I think that part's interesting.
0: Yeah, I've I found myself recently, like if there's a show that I want to see that's really popular, like the Stella show, Mm -hmm. something like that. I will not look on Instagram, or I'll stay yeah, off yeah. Facebook. It's almost like spoiler alert with movies or something. Yeah, like that. Like that, that's I don't, funny. I don't want to see the entire show on yeah, my two-inch by two-inch, yeah, yeah. you know, phone before I actually see it. So I found it. You know, I used to just see all these pictures from an art fair before it started, and then I would go and be like, "Yep, that looks like the photo I saw yeah, the other yeah. day." Mm-hmm. And I've realized that there's actual you know, there's a real value for me not to look beforehand. Yeah. So I've been actually. Actively trying to like disengage before seeing
1: certain things. Yeah, it's funny. Like I, I with Instagram, like I go on and off of using Instagram. Like, but I think when I go off, the one thing that I, the one thing that really actually ends up bringing me back to looking at it is just the, is is that you can see what's up, out what's what's actually being exhibited right now. I think yeah. that's the kind of the best use for it, even if it. Even if like it, it is a spoiler spoiler alert, I think it, what I missed when I'm not using it is just to see what's actually up there because you don't always get if you're not reading a New Yorker or like looking at like some app like on your phone that says yeah. what's up like what's hap- what's actually being exhibited, you might not know. Yeah. Well, I don't see every piece that you create in person,
0: of course, because your work's going to a yeah, lot of different right. places, a lot of different shows. But it seems to me that you're using Instagram in a way that's an extension of it. I'm guessing that some of the photographs you take and the way that you frame them, it's almost like you're using it as another
1: avenue of exploring an image. I mean, I really, really love photography. Like yeah. I was telling you, like it was my my uh, original discipline. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I don't... And in, in the same way that uh, you were talking about spoiler alert, like I don't normally post full works, but yeah. like while I'm working on things, like I do photograph the works like in a right. kind of creative way, just because I like photography, and yeah. so I wanna, I wanna, I'm compelled to share, but I want to, yeah, I guess you're right, yeah, making an extension. I but do I, that I,
0: sometimes with like a little detail, detail thing, yeah. but it just looks like a bad detail, but I feel like when you do it, it actually works because there's a mystery to it that yeah. I think Thank relates you. to your subject matter. Like yeah. there's this sort of, you're just peeking a little bit behind the be yeah. able to see this thing. And I feel like mystery is a big part of your work or a non familiarity a familiarity with it yeah. in a way, Familiar, in a resonance, yeah. but then it's foreign, but you can't place where these things are and what they're doing, which is I think a really alluring part of your work. So it seems like it works really well for you. And the photographs as well. Have you ever done photography and just
1: like a photo show? Yeah, just done. Photos. No, not for years. No, I mean, yeah, I, I think for me, like, I do a lot of other disciplines, like music, uh, photography, yeah. um, dance. I, I, love like, um, I love writing as well, but. I'm kind of old-fashioned a little bit in the sense that I feel like I wouldn't never call myself a musician or a photographer or a writer or... You know yeah. what I mean? And um, and, it hasn't occurred to me yet to, to kind of, like, make the... Take the kind of photographs that I make for Instagram to, like, the next level. Right. I mean, I'm not opposed to it, but I, it just doesn't... Has, hasn't occurred to me yet.
0: Yeah. I just... Yeah, I just want, I could see them as large photographs. And, yeah, like I a can a see that, that too. Yeah, like um, Tomás Demand is, I think, my favorite photographer. Mm-hmm. I just love the idea of him making these gigantic sculptures. Yeah, photographing them and then destroying them, and yeah. you're just left with that image. I mean, it's it. I feel like in his subject matter it relates to the idea of the media or the way that we're encountering imagery. And then our relationship to that, and the separation of that, and the actual event itself, and that resonates in his process. So I think it makes total sense. But there's something about the mystery of those photographs, you know, and and that's what I think you capture in in the photographs that I see.
1: I guess like for me, like I do, I do most all of the photography of my works. I don't do installation photography because it. I think it's really, really difficult, yeah, but I do photograph all my works and it's not super creative. it's still document documentary, yeah. but I am very particular about it. So I guess in a way, I do kind of engage with it, yeah, but not for ex- exhibition. right. And when you engage with your sculptures, like when
0: you get inside them or mm-hmm. move them around or wear the mm-hmm. the things that you're making, is that um, do you try to do that? Or is it in relation to a specific body of work or a specific work itself, or is sometimes it's the convenience of like I'm going to be there and I think I want to add a performative element? How do you kind of balance that with the other work that you're creating?
1: Well, originally, I, I when I was working on some sculptures, I felt like they needed extra, like power, mm-hmm. and. Um, I was thinking it it would be that you could feel it if there was somebody in it. You know, that that some people might think it's a robot or something, but that it's like you could kind of palpably, like tangibly feel the body in it. A lot of my work is about the body or nature, and um, I wanted also that extra kind of magic, like kind of ritualistic, um, mystical kind of, Thing and then also I feel like I really responded to the um, the quality of what do you call it um, endurance. Yeah, like I really respond to that. Like I'm a meditator and um, like I I kind of like body control like stuff and so like i i I thought like it would be so amazing to be able to like get into a sculpture before anyone comes to the opening and then do your thing and then wait till everybody leaves and then come out you know and that and that some people might know you're in there or experience like something moving or something like that but that like it would be hard for For most people maybe to to be like oh I could get into this thing that's cramped for like three hours if you know if you had claustrophobia or just like muscle pain or whatever and um so I got into that but I think the most honest way to answer the question is just that I really I really respond to ritual and so I thought like the sculpture that I like is mostly like a lot of sculpture that I like that's non-western is like The residue of some sort of like performance or Mm -hmm. something you know costuming or special you know plates or bowls that people made potions in or I mean you know whatever altars like all those kinds of things that I really like and so I think I, I wanted to kind of approach making my own somehow.
0: Yeah are you ritualistic about your studio process like when you come to the
1: studio and how you work? Not in a dogmatic way but I But I think that, like, that a lot of the processes that I use to, like, textures and shapes and certain kinds of tools that I use, like, have a kind of um, meditative kind of quality where it's like I'm, you know, burning up, you know, thousands of holes into something or like you know like cutting a whole bunch of lines into something and it has like a kind of systematic quality to it like when you mow the lawn or you vacuum a room or something where you're like kind of in a prescribed way like taking material away or marking time or something like that and so I think like over the years I've allowed myself to kind of gravitate towards processes or that that unlock that kind of marking of time and I find the I find like overall that those kinds of um, practices to, to be really centering for me. So that like I come here and like maybe spend like an hour and a half sitting doing a particular kind of thing, and I'm able to watch my thoughts like come into my mind and then go out, and I don't have to necessarily respond to them. Although I'm a, I'm aware and watching and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. I love that story that when we were in school there was a lecture, Tom Friedman came mm-hmm. and talked. Do you remember? I don't remember. He no. came or maybe that was the year before you were there. But he came and talked about how he would go to that he had a studio I think that was painted all white. Oh yeah, no and he, windows. He would and, bring yeah. one object and just look at it. Think, yeah. And kind of like think about, you know.
1: That's um, a it's I've, a
0: totally different way of working than the way I work, but I really love that kind of idea of just a new relationship with something every single day or just emptying out your thoughts and thinking about one specific thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I like that too. I don't really work that way either, but yeah, I think for me, like, really, because I don't work with anybody else, like, I have to just kind of be in production mode when I'm here, so yeah. I'm not really, like, um, I mean, the production mode can be creative, but I think for me, because of the nature of the way that I work, it's it's a lot more, um, the pleasure is more ethereal than like, it's not even contemplation. It's like, it's just like watching material be subtracted. It sounds really pedestrian, but it's like, there's something kind of like transfixing about it for me.
0: Yeah, I could, I never could have an assistant. Yeah. And I think it was just because I do things, I'm so, so much of a control freak. Like Mm -hmm. I just want to, everything to have my hand and to be done the way I want to do it Yeah, that I could never do. I mean, it's not, I like talking to people. I don't, I'm not the kind of person that shuts the door and I can't be interrupted when I'm working, yeah. but I just can't have other people doing, working on my stuff. I don't know why.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. And I and I, over the years, I, I realized that what's strange about it is that it's not really a principle. Yeah, It's not that I won't ever have, but an assistant but I also feel the same way except maybe a little bit more private right like the guys that are in the studio here are old friends and so I feel like it's more like an apartment yeah. kind of over here but I think that like even though the wood shop or the the room that I work in that's for toxic materials like it's not a sacred space but it's like when I'm here I'm like in the groove doing my thing it's very it is very personal yeah and so um I don't know how I could unless unless i could somehow hire my wife or some or hire a really good friend yeah i don't know how i could do that and i don't really want to tell somebody else to do my thing either then you got to you know, work like, and I don't spend want to, time doing that i don't yeah. want someone i want people to do what they want to do not right. what i want them to yeah, do yeah. no i, I can completely i mean mm-hmm. although i know it's nice for young artists that need you know that 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 it's Beneficial to be an assistant for money and yeah. for experience and stuff. I mean, but well, don't worry. There's a lot of people who <laughs> <laughs> who, take, who have Jeff, assistants. Jeff Koons <laughs> is taking care of that
0: for, for most everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's plenty of those opportunities. So, what are you working on now? What's coming up?
1: Um, I have this show in Cologne uh, at Marcus Ludgen and it's. Um, it's these wall works mm-hmm. and um, a couple of discrete sculptures, and they're um, they're kind of based on. I'm imagining them as like space stations or um, portals or um, some sort of communication hub, hub, like a telephone booth or mm-hmm. um, something like that. They could be satellites. Um, or I don't know, like automated glory hole or I don't know. They're just like they have this like weird um, vibe that I can't quite put my finger on, but it's technological, even though the shapes are organic. Like um, it feels technological to me, like scientific, like it could be about energy or vibrations or but it has this real quality of transmission to me. Mm Um, yeah
0: because it's radiating layers
1: yeah there's like lots of layers and it's like there are, there are places that look like orifices where you feel tempted to put something in into it or it's like there are like buttons or speakers or yeah um, um, but at the same time, they kind of feel natural. Like I don't know if you ever saw that Cronenberg movie Existens? I haven't. Yeah. Well, crash, but In the, 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 Existens, they have this like weird like machine that they that they use to like travel into areas, and it's like it's and it's very organic though. Mm-hmm. It's not like a hard-edged right. like technology. It's like organic technology. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of feel like uh, that's kind of what's going on with this show. Yeah. And how
0: much of this work, because that totally resonates, I think, with what I'm looking at. Uh-huh. How much of um, the process of what you're doing is like a formal? Because there is like a formalism to it in a way of just the color and the way that you're placing things. And do you think about it not only as that narrative that's going on, but also like these objects and the colors and how they're responding to each other? Or is it impulsive and not really related to that, um, to the quote unquote look of it?
1: Well for me, like, I feel like I'm a person who believes that abstraction is not formal. Mm-hmm. That it's like that abstraction actually comes from our response to the natural world. Right. Yeah. And that like maybe we don't understand mitosis or um, you know, fusion or something microscopic or even something larger like stars in distant universes or black holes or gravity waves mm-hmm. or diseases botany oceanography like I, I feel like artists have maybe like an evolutionary quali- quality where we've always responded to the mystery of the universe and so like for me I don't think of abstraction as purely formal yeah so like for me um, there definitely is a formal maybe formal wouldn't be my word of choice like an aesthetic mm-hmm. desire. Um, but I feel like to me, I don't, I think that like, um, I don't know how it started, but I feel like so much insular art conversation assumes that abstraction is like, um, a breaking down of like rules and conventions and that it's like, like the Stella model where it's like, you're trying to like push painting into like a new level. Mm -hmm. But to me, I don't really like, I feel like paintings by Kandinsky or, or somebody like that, are have a deeper kind of spiritual, more natural, brought on by the natural world than, right. like, than, than that it's like purely, like, institutional. Yeah, I think um, it's
0: just probably had to come down to its most yeah. austere, well, and I think minimal point, and it explode from there. Right?
1: And I think it's easier to talk about, too, that it's like if we, bo- it, it definitely, if you boil it down to a conversation of, of, about art, then it's easier to kind of get a hold on what we're talking about. But it's like there isn't really any great language to try to make a connection between, with science that isn't dogmatic. So yeah. it's like, it's possible. I mean, it doesn't always have to be about science, but for me, like, right now it is. Mm-hmm. And I keep thinking to myself, like, how do we quantify, like, intuitive, like, people's intuitive reaction to the natural world? Mm-hmm. Like, there's really no way to do it. Like, what kind of language are we supposed to use? Like, it's either science or it's not. But to me, I feel like maybe there's something in abstraction that's, like in between science and art like and it's like that's, it feels like that's where <laughs> this is I'm well I'm I'm hoping I mean to me it makes I think in a, in a, a weak way it's like something that I've arrived at to make myself feel better mm-hmm. and that it's like I feel more peaceful and useful if I accept the fact that I'm like in harmony with the universe somehow yeah. and that it's like I'm like intuitively reacting to things that I can't completely understand but and I I, I got there in in a really weird way but often like when I'm titling works I I look I'm like on the internet like Mm -hmm. doing internet things Uh, and um, like I'll be reading about um, you know like what the actual scientific quality is of boiling Mm -hmm. and as I'm reading it I keep thinking to myself like if I was reading this Wikipedia entry about boiling as a spiritual text or like something like it also totally makes sense. Yeah. Like if you abstract it and you're like, you're like this, you know how things come to boil or like how uh, a liquid becomes like a vapor or like, you know, like when, you know, like when things transform and stuff like that, like you can, you can read into all that transformation as like, um, like it like your lifetime also experiences like a similar kind of way in yeah. which you transform from like your childhood to your adolescence to your adulthood to your you know geriatric years like mm-hmm. it's like you like your mind changes and your approach to perspective changes and and so you can kind of like they can be allegories like i think science can be like a weird allegory for like emotional maturity or like know wisdom or something and so i think like there's a lot of um in aesthetic decision making there's a lot of shame involved because you have to make a decision that like someone can judge you for and And it relates to something yeah yeah and so for me like i feel like um i don't want that shame you know it's like I'm, i'm i have the um confidence to like make works in the studio but i don't always have like the same confidence like when it's being discussed or when it's like comes down to whether it's like people are into it or someone wants to own it or like all those things like I I kind of want to try to distance myself from yeah Uh, including my responsibility to talk to people like you or anyone about what I do and so I think like um you know as being people who are are educated, like it's like you can talk your way around probably any issue, but I think, like, w- when you really ask yourself, like, what your work is about, like, it's kind of, sometimes you're faced with, like, um, some scary or strange answers. Yeah. And um, I think, like, for my earlier work, like, when it was representational, it was easy for me to, to use narrative as a way to talk to people about what I did. Mm-hmm. But as I went closer into abstraction, I found like a real vacuum of like things to talk about because it's the work kind of speaks for itself. Um, and and I think um, it's more open ended and so it's like more on the person that's looking at it. And in that space I really like calm down and try to find out like what I actually feel I'm responding to. Thanks so much for doing it. And yeah, tonight. thanks for coming over.